0: Hi everyone, thank you again for being together here with us for this new session, uh, a session which which I am so excited about, because this is uh, by far my favorite theological topic, and I have an uh, absolute um, top-notch apologist, scholar if it comes to the Trinity, uh, my guest for today is Edward Delcor, he is the President and Director of the Department of Christian Defense He's administrator and theological contributor in literature uh, at Grace uh, Bible and University. He teaches apologetics in London. Um, uh, he also holds a master at apologetics from Columbia. Um, so this person right here has been acknowledged by many of my favorite apologists as someone who to be respected. He also has written two amazing books. One called the one the definitive look at is theology, the defending the Triunity of our God, and a co-author of Our God is Triune, which he also wrote with Michael Arburgos, uh, Hiram Ardiaz, uh, Vokat Malone, Anthony Rogers, and R. P. Basov. Uh, we're going to get into this type of stuff more uh, thoroughly. Uh, so beforehand, at Dr. Albert Delcour, I'm very, very thrilled to have you here. So thank you for your presence here.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and share and speak on this very, very important, vitally important truth of uh, the way God revealed himself to mankind.
0: Yeah. So so I would say, look, let's get into it. Why is it so important, the triunity of
1: Christ? That's a really good question, because sometimes even Christians see it as some kind of secondary thing, some kind of thing where... um, well, as long as long as you love jesus you know mm. or don't give me theology just give me christ well the fundamental problem with that statement is um as long as you believe in jesus the the problem with that is well number one all groups believe in most groups believe in a jesus muslims have an idea of a jesus jehovah's witnesses have an idea a doctrine of jesus mormons do so on and so forth so it's not it's it's not believing in jesus per se it's believing in the jesus of biblical revelation and if you don't believe in the jesus of biblical revelation then you're rejecting him it doesn't matter how devoted you are or how zealous you are to prove or to affirm the jesus in your construct if it's outside of biblical revelation then you just don't have christ and if you don't have christ you don't have the gospel and as john says in first john uh, chapter 2 verses 22 and 23 if you don't have the Son. You don't have the Father. So the biblical authors found this extraordinarily vital to one's salvation. It is a salvation issue because we're talking about the nature of God. And if you look, um, and if later we have time, I will will demonstrate how Jesus looked at the nature um, of that which he shared with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that's really how fundamentally I define the Trinity in scripture. We find three persons who share the nature of the one being. And we'll go over some of the misrepresentations that Muslims and Jehovah's witnesses and all the other Unitarians um, postulate. But the fact of the matter is if you don't believe in the Trinity, you just don't have the God of biblical revelation because he specifically and simply revealed himself in such a way that any literate person can understand. That doesn't mean every literate person is going to believe, but just, from a factual standpoint of just reading in any in any standard recognized translation um you're going to get you're going to get doctrine meaning you're going to get the uh the biblical revelation of who god is not that you'll accept it or not but you you know some of these passages that point out that god is multi-personal you cannot just escape that you cannot just deny it unless you read into your own theology and have, we were just talking about David Bernard, have these weird, you know, awkward, outside of context um, interpretations. So the fact of the matter is, Scripture says you have to have knowledge, sufficient knowledge of the true God. I believe it's Hosea 6, 6, Yeah, Yahweh himself says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than all the burnt offerings. So you can be very zealous. You can do all kinds of works and sacrifices um, in devotion to your God. But if it's not knowledge of the God of biblical revelation, then you're just doing it in vain. And I would point out, I tell people in non-Christian constructs and world religions who are not Christian, Um, I point out in Proverbs 15.8, Solomon, the wisest person in the world writing under divine inspiration said this, your sacrifices or your works um, is an abomination to God, the wicked that does a lot of works the non believer Solomon says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. So the more works you're doing, the more abominable it gets. I tell this to Roman Catholics. I tell this to Jehovah's witnesses that are just constantly basing their whole eternal destiny on works. If you don't have the right God, it's not merely useless, but rather you're storing up, you're accumulating abomination. That's how bad it is. I always tell them it's better if you just stay home, just sit on the couch and do nothing. Because if you're doing works to a false God, then you're, a, you're accumulating wrath. So from Genesis to Revelation, the notion and the doctrine of how God revealed himself is something that's, that's not secondary. It's fundamental to the gospel. It's fundamental to who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, who the Father is, to the nature of God. And so when we're discussing the Trinity, that's exactly what we're looking at, the essence and nature of God as he revealed himself, not as we bring him down to earth and put him into earthly categories, but how he revealed himself. And because of that, because it's such a fundamental doctrine, essential doctrine, it's also one of the most attacked and misrepresented doctrines. They ever noticed that with non-Christian religions like Muslim, uh, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Christadelphians, and we can go on, Oneness Pentecostalism, they devote a lot of ink in their literature to attacking, and I would say misrepresenting the doctrine of Trinity, right? I think they spend more ink doing that than other doctrines they try to refute or deny Amen. or even, even positively present something. Um, so it seems that the course of their, their whole religion is centered on an attack of the Trinity, but in saying that, what I find unfortunate is within the church, it seems it's the most neglected doctrine in too many churches.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly um, what you said. If I recall correctly, you once said that anti-Trinitarians are getting more better in attacking the Trinity than Christian Trinitarians are good at defending it. So there's this educational gap that needs to be filled up back again.
1: Absolutely. And I put that, um, yes, the individual is responsible because they have scripture, but also the pastors are double, yeah. you know, in a double sense. They're responsible for teaching. And unfortunately out here and, and, and abroad, um, out here in the United States, what I found in my years of experience in just interacting with churches, we don't have a lot of teaching pastors. Most, a lot of, not, I don't like using the word most, too many pastors are cruise ship directors, They're just having fun and making great messages that excite the heart and elevate the mood and play videos and all these things and have horrible uh, lyrics in their so-called praise and worship songs, like Reckless Love. But we can go on, on, on that topic. But the fact of the matter is not enough pastors are teachers. They're just not teaching. So why would you know? As a Christian, why would you have knowledge? I mean, basic knowledge of the Trinity. But I will say, you know, I I want to qualify that because we're not holding, I don't hold at least to doctrinal perfectionism. Um, I'm not saying you have to have exhaustive knowledge of the Trinity. You have to know, you know, every, every word and verb and adjective and preposition and, and know how to exegete the pat. No, a simple apprehension is something that if you're truly saved in regeneration, that is a gift from God, but we're talking sufficient knowledge. But you know as christians we're not supposed to stop we're not supposed to stay there we're not supposed to stay in mushy doctrine or an incomplete gospel presentation we are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ says peter in second peter three eighteen. but normally christians who encounter whether muslims or jehovah's witnesses or other unitarians the average christian has just not been exposed To adequate teachings not only on the trinity but justification and other important doctrines so they get you know they get tied up or as i think it was dr walter martin said most jehovah witnesses can can turn christians into a pretzel within five minutes you know because we're just not studied i mean the the church is just um they're lax in this area and i hold pastors accountable for that for not being teachers that's their job
0: yeah that's correct yeah that's the whole thing. But for the last 200 years, ever since like the uprising of quote unquote science and the God of the Gaps kind of stuff, uh, when you ask, would ask Christian like 100 years ago, would you believe in the, the, the Christianity without proof? Many of them would say yes. But in this day and age, there is so much proof, there's so much information out there that just basing our faith on just like WIMP, for instance, is not. It's not the the way as it should be. There is so much out there and on an educational level. The whole reason why I put out this podcast is every time when someone has a question about, for instance, the manuscript, for instance, I did did a session with Dr. James E. Snap about Mark 16 and the pericope adultery, for instance, to wipe out all the doubts that's off there. So it's really um, up to the individual, of course. And uh, if it comes to the Trinity, of course, uh, what would you, uh, have a response when someone says, uh, what, what does it matter if people uh, acknowledge Christ or acknowledge the Trinity? Are you a Christian or not when you don't believe in the Trinity?
1: Well, again, John, if you, don't, if you don't have correct theology on who Christ is, you just don't have Christ. If you, you know, I, I always say this, if you believe Jesus is God, now he said in John eight twenty four. Unless you believe that I am, and the significance of that, the semantic of that, unless you believe I am the eternal God, now he claimed he was deity many times, but this is one such passage as I see where he used from the, in light of the Old Testament background, that ego e me, that the, the unpredicated I am, unless you believe that I am God, you will perish in your sin. So Jesus saw his deity as essential to heaven or hell. He saw his believing in his deity, that he was God in the flesh, as something that's not negotiable. This is salvation. Without it, Jesus said you will perish. Now, here's the question. If you believe Jesus is God, truly God, I don't like phrases that some Christians use, 100% God, 100% man. Yeah,
0: the hypostatic unit kind of stuff. Yeah, I know. I always say to guys, stop saying 100% this, 100% that. Logically, it's not... It's not.
1: No, that would make a 200% person. Yeah. And I, I don't, I mean, you know, uh, fully God, fully man. I, yeah, it's, I, know, I know what people mean. I, I think it's more biblically uh, affirmed to say truly God, truly man. But so if you believe he's truly God and truly man, in what relationship is Jesus to the father? Because the father is truly God. So if Jesus is truly God, how do you, how do you grapple with that? is he is he the father or is he a separate god now i see it as that that's your only two options because if he's truly god not a god either he is the father or he's a separate god like in polytheism or mormonism or the trinitarian biblical view that he shares the nature of the one god and and as as you know With most Unitarians and Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, when they see all the passages that teach one God, they immediately assume, without proving it, based on their prior theological commitment, that one God means one person. So no matter what you say about Christ, he can't be God because there's only one God. But in their mind, their hidden assumption and the pre-committed theology is saying one God means one person. But that is not how God revealed himself. Because when we look at the word one, the word one hanging can mean many things. One what? One what? One corporation, one person, one being, context tells us. And I don't have to read into the passages that say God is one in light of all the other passages, the idea of unipersonalism. And we have to distinguish being and person. And that's something I don't think Unitarians do. Because being is what something is, right? Person is who something is. So the Trinity is based on ontological monotheism that there's one true God. That's the basis of the Trinity. But we don't say one person because we don't find a passage that actually teaches one person. So it's it's vitally important to understand how Jesus is God in relationship to his father. He's not the father, that was an ancient heresy that was refuted that now it's oneness theology. He's not a separate God because the Bible's against polytheism. And there's no other logical option but how the scripture presents God. One God revealed in three persons. Jesus is truly God. The Father is truly God. But both are not separate gods. They share, rather, the nature of the one God as with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that's why it's vitally important. You're talking about the being of God. Yeah.
0: So one of the major points of contention is how can it be monotheistic? So you already mentioned it's in essence, it's one being, but it has three persons, of course, like how would you propose to a non-believer or an anti uh, as a broader way of speaking, how would you present the idea that Christianity is monotheistic through the
1: court? Well, because the scriptures from Genesis, the revelation teaches one God, Jesus said, this is, Interesting, I give this, this is a great witnessing tip for uh, uh, for Christians, two Mormons, in Mark 12, 29, 30, um, they asked Jesus, the scribe asked Jesus the m- most important commandment, and Jesus said, the most important one, of all the commandments, now there was over 600 commandments, um, of all the commandments, to hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, that there's only one of them, right, there's the only Shema. one God, mm-hmm. The shema, but the 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 term to hear it's a imperative verb that means Jesus is commanding that you believe that there's one and to love him with everything you have your heart soul mind and strength. But he's commanding because that's an imperative verb there that there's one. You need to hear. You need to believe that there's one God. So the idea of one God is just the the most the greatest commandment. So therefore. To believe like Mormons believe, or Hindus, separate gods, that would be breaking the greatest commandment. It seems to me that's the greatest sin, right? Because it's a Jesus or the, Yahweh in the Old Testament spent chapters st- expressing there's one of me. There's not many. However, what we find in the Old Testament and what we find also in the New Testament is that this one God has revealed himself in a multi-personal way. If I could take just a couple minutes to show, and a lot of times with Unitarians that they would be doing this, yeah, 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 you know, like that. And so that that's when you know it's a spiritual thing. yeah. Because they're, they're not just, in other words, you can articulate the Trinity in scholarly and simple coherent language, clear and cogent presentation, but it doesn't guarantee they're gonna believe. You know, you can show a Jehovah's Witness, John 1, 1 and show how clear it is within context. and they're, it doesn't guarantee they're going to believe it. yeah it's it's not that they're they're not smart
0: but this is it, a it, it just yeah i know but one of the examples that someone just gave me like uh we have like a kid and when you give give a kid a hammer everything for the kid is a nail it just starts whacking at everything just at the same way when someone reads genesis 126 let us make men like oh these are angels everything needs to be angels so like that's the way they already the presupposed uh way of looking at scripture for instance just or just somehow it just crystallizes in them and and all of a sudden the rest of the bible in its holistic way of looking at things just doesn't matter like are you a modalist no i don't care about the 200 plus basic passages with the personal pronouns of the father son holy spirit i don't care about it are you uh uh an arianist oh i don't want to see look at all the verses of the deity of christ for instance so it's like it's it's deep spiritually embedded in, in the person itself you can explain something but you cannot understand something for someone else unfortunately
1: yeah and we we know it's the spirit that would would open the eyes and mind and heart so that's why i always suggest for all christians before they encounter before they engage with a unitarian or a muslim just make sure you're praying for God to give you the, the right yeah. passages, um, uh, what direction to go. Look, you can know everything about Scripture. You can know, you know everything about the group to which you're, you're evangelizing. However, um, you don't want to bombard it with every single verse you know. You know that's, that's the wrong way. You just pray yeah. to the Lord for wisdom. What we find in the Old Testament, we find a multi-personal God. We do not find a Unitarian God. There's no place where God is presented as Unitarian. In fact, we have some a, a character called the angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord, we see from Genesis all the way throughout the Old Testament. However, this angel of the Lord, and I'm not going to go through all the passages, but for instance, in Exodus 3, where it was the angel of the Lord was, was the speaker. And he was identified as God and then in verse 6 he claims he's the god of the fathers right abraham isaac and jacob he says i'm that god to moses then he says i am the eternal one this was the angel of the lord and when you look at all the other accounts uh, with abraham with with gideon with hagar they all the recipients of the angel of the lord identified him as yahweh so we were just talking about genesis 1924 and and um, it's reasonably to it's reasonable to assume this was an angel of the Lord because there were three visitors right in 18, and Abraham wanted to feed them, wash their feet, and all these things. But then one started, one was speak speaking, one was the speaker. And as we read the progression in chapter 18 and 19, we find that the speaker identifies himself as Yahweh. And in 19 uh, verses around uh, one and two, we find. It's interesting. The narrator says, then two angels were there. Well, where's that other one? Because the other one was the speaker and the other visitor or angel or messenger identified himself as Yahweh. Then we see the culmination in Genesis 1924, where we read literally Yahweh, then Yahweh rain, brimstone and fire from Yahweh out from heaven. The preposition Hebrew, the Hebrew preposition mean is used out from Heaven, well, are you telling me there's one Yahweh here doing something on behalf of another Yahweh? Uh, That's what the text says. And no matter how you slice it, that's the clear reading. If you go back to the original, it gets, it's even more clear, but you don't have to. Yahweh does something on behalf of another Yahweh. Now, that is only consistent with monotheism. Only consistent with monotheism. In the context, right, of Trinitarianism. Because there's not many gods. And certainly that Yahweh's, you know, he's not the same person. It's a distinct person. Same with Daniel chapter 7. The son of man was worshipped and he was the cloud rider in verse 13. And in, in verse 14, the son of man was worshipped in distinction from the ancient of days. You mentioned Genesis 19.26, which is actually a, a, a plural verb. Um. Some would say the us as you mentioned were angels, even some Christians. The problem with that is angels don't create. Mm-hmm. Well some would say, well, the one God or Yahweh is speaking to his angels. however, the word let us make when you look at all the times it's used, I think it's used um, several times in the Old Testament. Now one time does it infer Does it mean one person, is doing the action, and he's just talking to other persons. In other words, the us is comprised of the actors, the ones doing the action of the verb. We're not created in the in the image of angels. Let us make man in our image. Not
0: us. Yeah.
1: yeah. And um, there's lots of plural verbs, adjectives, plural nouns, plural prepositions, like in Genesis 3.22. Man has become. Like us. And the word one, ahead, like one of us. Yeah, and, and, you know, you, you just can't escape those. You can't just deny those out of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Genesis 11, 7. Let us confuse their language. Yeah, yeah Or yeah. let us know, go down. And, and there's many yeah. ones.
0: Like yeah. w- With other words, the, the Old Testament is a very bad place to refute Trinitarianism. It just is it, the whole uh, presupposition of like, yeah, Council of Messiah, Tertullian, Paul, they all like, everything like no 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 no, go back to Genesis one. You should read the, the God like bara Barashit, elohim. The in the beginning God created, and then you have like the spirit of course, and the word mahrapet is also used for uh, a cognitive being. Also used in Deuteronomy thirty two eleven. So in the first two verses alone, you have like a very big problem if uh, if you are an anti-trinitarian. But for instance, like Genesis nineteen twenty four someone had a response to that which was yeah god is everywhere like omnipresence sure thing no problem but that's the way they would like to explain away uh genesis 9 to 24 I, w- I was asking like, do you believe in pantheism or something like i i don't see
1: yeah that's
0: a very desperate and would, one
1: and why would the author dif- differentiate two distinct yahwehs if that yeah god is everywhere that that's irrelevant to the argument that doesn't prove anything that's like a oneness Pentecostal saying in John 1, 1. Well, the word is in the father's mind. That doesn't disprove pre-existence of the son. I can say, well, right now, um, my wife is in my mind or my friend in New York is in my mind. It doesn't prove they don't exist at that time, right? Yeah, so that's, yeah. It's a horrible argument. Um, I, I, I found some very interesting in uh, dealing with the plural verbs in Isaiah 6 where Yahweh says, who should who shall go for us? Who shall I, I send? Who will go for us? Um That's in light of verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, uh, Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We know that the same language in the Septuagint is used in John 12, um, when John says Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and spoke about him. But anyways, um, in verse eight, interesting, Jerome says, when in reference to who will go for us, he said it indicates the sacrament of the Trinity. And that's what you have historically. I don't have to read into these passages some awkward meaning well he's omnipresent so he's every or something like that i don't have to say well he's called maker or creators in um ecclesiastes 12 1 in hebrew i don't have to say well that's really a an inten- plural of intensity i can allow the verse the verses to read for himself and i would say also that there's a a truckload a vast amount of quotations on these plural words by early church fathers, all affirming the multi-personal one true God.
0: Amen. Yeah, I just wanted to ad- address uh, this book. Uh, this book is amazing. Uh, if you want to study, the, uh, how, if you want to learn first of how to refute one Pentecostalism, also known as modalism uh, in our way of thinking, this book is not only theologically very educative, but it's also very 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 funny like i already showed him i got like the all these uh xd emojis because i really needed to laugh so hard because um like the anti-trinitarians really need to bend all this type of stuff in order to make their theology work and at the end of it you just are like just thinking to yourself they're desperate
1: as it can get yeah here's here's the updated version ah We'll try, we'll try to get you a copy of that. Um, but, um, Awesome. You Thank you me. can get this on my, on my, anyone, if they're interested, just go to the website, Christiandefense.org. Yeah. Christian defense.org. You can pick up the, uh, That'll be a
0: hundred percent in the, um, uh, in the description. Uh, there was another question. um, um Yeah, I think in in, in the broader sense, we also uh, touched on the soteriological side about salvation and and why it's monotheistic. Uh, Would you like to go into the objections a little bit? Sure. Yeah, whatever. Then we go, like, the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible. It was introduced in the 4th or 3rd century. Like the exact word uh, fallacy, you know, uh, used many times.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that's a, a few problems with that. Uh, number one, that's an incorrect. In fact, um, you know, if you want Trinitarian, if you want patristics, you know, I would, I would say read objectively the patristics. Most you know, Christians do not know how to read church fathers because they assume the church fathers spoke in modern language and they use modern idioms and modern vocabulary. But the fact of the matter is no, they, they, they didn't. And, if you look at the apostolic fathers, now these are the fathers who were probably, or were, um, many we know for sure, were disciples of the original apostles, right? And when we read Methodes, and when we read Justin Martyr, when we read, you know, speaking on Let Us Make, um, Athanagoras um, uh, Agronag- uh, of Athens, who speak of, um, who... who we're astonished to hear, and I'm, I'm reading from it, uh, men who speak of God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who declare both their power and union in their distinction, are called atheists. Meaning, the early Christians were called uh, atheists because yeah, they, because they believed in the men. Yeah, yeah, but he he affirms the the God the Son. He says God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Actually, the word, if you want the word Trinity, which is a you know a fallacy, because many modern doctrinal words are not in the Bible, like incarnation omnipresent, omniscient. None of these words are in the Bible.
0: Even the chapters and the verses numbering.
1: Yeah, yeah, ex- All the exactly. type of stuff, yeah. Um, one of my favorite verses, and this comes from 190, and again, we're looking at early patristic literature predating Nicaea. Listen to Clement of Alexandria writing around 190 AD in his book, Stromata, book 5, chapter 14. He said, "Has this says this, 190, Remember, Council of Nicaea was 325, 190. He says, I understand nothing else than the Holy Trinity to be meant. The third is the Holy Spirit, and the Son is the second, by whom all things were made according to the will of the Father. Are you serious? That's not a Trinitarian reference? He mentions the Trinity. So most of the assertions you hear about Nicaea are people who have not not even basically researched any of the data of patristic literature. They have no idea. Normally they're copy copying and pasting the work of others, or they hear something online, or they're, they're internet theologians, and they're just looking at Unitarian arguments. They're not studying. They're very unread when it comes to patristics, but no. Um, factually, the, the word Trinity, I, I think the first usage was 180 by um, Theophilus of Antioch, uh, referring to God, but there's Keep in mind, we use the word Trinity because it defines the biblical data. We don't use it because it's, hey, we see this English word Trinity in the Bible. No, we don't see Nicaea either. We don't see incarnation. But what we find is the biblical data supports the modern, uh, and Trinity is not really a modern word. It goes way back. But we use uh, non-biblical words like incarnation, omnipresent, to support the biblical data, and that's the key. Is it supported? Is the word incarnation supported? Uh, yeah, John 1 14. Galatians 4 4, um, 1 Corinthians 2 8. You know, we can find multi references in the New Testament that God became flesh, right? Uh, Philippians 2 6 through 11. Uh, so, we use the word incarnation, we use the word triune or trinity because from Genesis or Revelation, God is presented as a multi personal God. We find that there's three persons who are called and who are presented as truly God, as Yahweh, we find this in the New Testament, and the Old, uh, who share the nature of the one God, who are called Yahweh, who are called uh, God, who also are presented as creator of all things. But yet there's one God. So we use the Trinity to explain the biblical verses that are vast, that demonstrate that God is triune.
0: Yeah, and it's also such a non-argument. When someone says, where does it say the word Trinity? I'm like, I'm not going into this stuff. Like, this person right here in front of me is is just trolling. And But but yet then again, when it's, for instance, a Muslim, there are so many things in, in their holy book, which also doesn't use verbatim, for instance. So we could go into that now. So then... Like Messiah, the, yeah. Yeah, so like, for instance, Jesus says, doesn't say I am the Messiah, but he is the Messiah, according to you guys. So that's not a whole other subject. So the, the second uh, objection, the Trinity is from pagan origin. What would your
1: response be? And normally the Jehovah's Witnesses like to use that argument. Um, first, I point out, um, okay, it, it, the trend, if the word Trinity is not in the Bible, therefore that must mean Since the word Trinity is not in the Bible, that must mean it's false. Well, since the word is not written in any pagan literature, right, then it must not be pagan either. So I can use their same argument. You don't find the word Trinity in pagan literature. You don't find the the biblical concept of three distinct persons, What you do find like with Hindus, you find uh, many gods, you find polytheism, you find separate gods. And that is not the doctrine of Trinity. And that's what Jehovah's Witnesses normally point out when they assert, falsely assert that the Trinity is from pagan origins. They're, and of course, come on, they, they read these things from the Watchtower literature. They, they don't do their own study, say with Muslims. They're very unstudied in Christian theology. It's just embarrassing how unstudied they are. But then they assert, they make mammoth assertions. But um, it's not pagan because pagan literature paganism was always many gods it was not one eternal god creator of all things that's personal that is revealed in three distinct persons and god became the son of god became flesh and provided redemption right for sinners nowhere is that concept found in pagan literature so that is completely false
0: yeah yeah awesome point uh and also an objection which i also heard was um for instance, it would, it would like to, uh, to digress a little bit towards the Hindus. They also mentioned, for instance, that uh, all these gods that the Hindus, for instance, have, but it's also one essence. Are you still, when they ask me, like, do you think that Hinduism is monotheism or polytheism? I say it's polytheism, all, all, logically speaking. But then they say it's all one essence. It's all one thing. So you're saying the Trinity has one essence, three persons, but still monotheism. Now oh, you're being hypocritical. What would what your response be to these type of allegation? Well, Hinduism,
1: yeah, they use a Mormon argument that the father, son, and spirit are in one essence or in unity. Um, and they, they they don't use essence in an ontological way. They use it more in a unified way. They're all unified. And that's not Trinitarianism. I mean, yes, the person is unified, but these are distinct persons um, who share the nature there's only one true God. Hindus do not allow for one true God And and when they say one in essence, they mean one in unity. They do not mean, it's not tantamount to the doctrine of the Trinity. Hindus have more gods than Mormonism. I mean, more gods than the sands of the seashell uh, than the sea. And that is not Trinitarian doctrine. There's only one eternal God creator of all things who revealed himself in three persons. That's nothing like the Hindu concept of um, polytheism. It's not even, it's not even, um, it's not even, a, a doctrine where they worship um henotheism, where they worship one God. They don't have anything to do with those other gods. It's not even like Mormonism. They just hold to many gods and that's polytheism. It doesn't matter if they're one in, in essence or one in, in they're unified. It doesn't matter. The question is how many separate gods are there? And they do not believe that there's one being, one distinct being. I don't like to use the word separate persons either. I like to use distinct. I think that's a, yeah. a more accurate
0: yeah, term, me too. Yeah. Um, another question. Um, one thing that also heard, which was very interesting, is we, we all know that God is self-sufficient. It's about the aseity. Like uh the, the Trinitarian of like like for me, for instance, as an apostolic Orthodox, the monarchy of the Father, of course, we have like the Father's Holy Spirit, of course, but then their claim is, is that the son doesn't have a satiety because he is dependent of the father what would you do what would your response be to
1: this type of well and yeah i think they're confusing his his earthly life um and i know there there's much literature there's much writing on on christ himself being autotheus if you look at the church fathers um again a, a, interesting ignatius uses this one term again agonatos, uh, agonatos to refer to jesus as being unoriginate um a god to himself um unbegotten that word um uncreated and it's a technical term that means the unoriginate god that's how the early church used it and um, ignatius interestingly uses this of christ um sometimes the argument becomes philosophical the fact that jesus is dependent we see in his earthly life has nothing to do with the ontological trinity in fact um there as, as you know there there's two views within christianity in terms of his pre-existence before he became flesh uh was he eternally subordinate to the father um not ontologically subordinate but um functionally subordinate or functionally submissive to the father and the other view would say no they're they're co- totally equal by way of position. And then in his Messiah, in his earthly life as Messiah, he was dependent on the father for most things. As he said, I do nothing except what I see the father doing, so on and so forth. Um, but they you know, both views though, have nothing to do with the ontological Trinity. It has to do with the economical Trinity. And I have actually, I, I, I hold, I have no problem with the, The son being eternally um, submissive in that sense, even before, particularly for John, you know, I see John six thirty eight exegetically, the the action of him saying not my will but your will happened before exegetically happened before he came to earth because the areas having been sent comes before having came down to heaven. Great Um, point, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, but but both views, regardless, have nothing to do with the ontological Trinity. They're all economical issues
0: yeah but what's the difference between the ontological trinity and the economical trinity for those who don't know
1: okay um the ontological trinity has to do with his nature um the economic trinity has to do with the function or the or the um or or the actions in function of the persons for instance economically we use the word economic it was god the son who died on the cross it wasn't the father Mm-hmm. it wasn't the holy spirit who's the one who justifies we read in scripture in, in romans 8 and other places it's the father who declares righteous and of course he does it on the basis of the the, the cross work of the son um who is the one who adopts it's the father who elects it's the father who dies per, or propitiates the father well that's the son who regenerates the holy spirit so we see all these functions mm-hmm. and when we look at the various functions and sometimes the functions are merged. But when we look at some of the distinct functions, functions, we norm, historically, theologians have termed this as the economic trinity. Um, similar to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jehovah, Witnesses like the, they like to quote the first part of it where the father is the head of Christ.
0: Mm-hmm. They don't quote
1: mm-hmm. the second part where mm-hmm. it says man, man is, or the first part, man is the head of wife, the wife. Okay, those are economic issues. That man is the head of wife does not mean that man is would believe that. But in the same breath, Paul says the father is the head of Christ. Again, these are economical terms, not ont. If you want ontology? If you want ontological Trinity? You look at places like uh, John five seventeen, where Jesus calls God his father, and John says. He kept calling, it's an imperfect tense there, a legion. He kept calling God his father, making himself, himself equal, equal to with God. God. Yeah. 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 And the Jews understood this, you know, or when he claimed I am, the Jews understood this. Mm. Or in Mark 14, 61, the, the you know, following, the priests understood exactly the ontological by nature sense. When Jesus claimed he was the son of God. I, I got, for
0: instance, I got here at the very end of my Bible. I got here like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I got here, for instance, they all both resurrect, They both forgive. They both uh, are eternal and all this type of stuff. And this are all scriptures just based. Because as you just said, uh, there is a distinction in function, of course. Because in a Trinitarian mm-hmm. language, the, the, how salvation works, for instance, Jesus also called called the inheritor. How can you inherit from the father when there's only one person, for instance, logically speaking, and all this type of stuff. So uh, my, ne- my next question, uh, what would you recommend if it comes to the philosophical side? Like if it comes to revelation, uh, that's the way it should be. That's would be. That should be the beacon of our theological way of doing apologetics about the Trinity. But if it comes to the philosophical side, when, uh, if it comes to a ascetic and all this type of stuff, what type of books or what type of ways of thinking would you recommend? We 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 all know that uh, God doesn't give give anything about Socrates or Aristotle or all these type of pre- people who have a certain type of opinion. We know that just completely demolished by God's word itself. But what would you recommend?
1: Um, I, I'm thinking of particular philosoph. It's funny, one one philosophical apologist that I I don't like a whole lot because of his soteriological views is uh, Norm Geisler. but he's a philosophical apologist. I don't know if he has, and I would only look at some past works that he he has done on philosophical apologetics. Um, There's there's not a lot of philosophical apologetics because it's it's just not a hugely viable area to go philosophical because it starts to remove yourself um, into an area that's outside of the exegesis of the text. So I don't know any offhand, as far as I know, current books on philosophical, specifically on philosophical apologetics, even though a lot of people use philosophical apologetics unknowingly, yeah. but I always suggest for Christians stay with the exegesis of the text, even with church fathers, um, you know, as, as you know, a lot of church fathers say a whole lot of things and, and look, we have a great bird's eye view of the early church, the church fathers. We have valuable resources with the church fathers. But, you know, they, they weren't fallible. They weren't writing fallible. Irenaeus said Jesus was, I mean, he was a smart guy. But yet he said, based on John 8, when Jesus said, uh, Abraham rejoiced at see my day, he saw it, and he was glad. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. Based on that statement, Irenaeus feels that Jesus was over 50 when he was crucified. So we just said, you know, we, we yeah. have to be careful when we read <laughs> patristics. Yeah. Um, I always suggest stay with the exegesis of the text.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, eat out the meat, spit out the bone. Like, don't throw the baby without the bathwater. When every time someone says, this church father said this. So, yeah. So, just because people disagree with each other doesn't mean that the revelation in of itself is faulty.
1: Right, right <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they say a lot, but they do say a lot of things. One thing they... That's vastly unanimous is the deity of Christ, especially in Ignatius's letters where he's he said when he's talking about salvation, um, he talks about the blood of God. I mean, he says in Ephesians, his letter to Ephesians, he literally says, uh, I forgot what he said before that dealing with our redemption from the blood of God. You know, it's a crass way of saying I know what he meant, but all the times in Ignatius's genuine letters, the middle revision, um, recension. When he points, when he uses this phrase, Jesus Christ, our God, several times, um, uh, a few times in, in a genuine sense, but several times he uses this phrase in distinction from the father. I always ask one Pentecostals who say Ignatius was a oneness. Show me one passage that in the original Greek in which he wrote, he presents grammatically that Jesus was the father. Give me one passage in Ignatius, the genuine letters. And there, there isn't any. You know, that's the fact of the matter. There isn't any. Yeah.
0: So if we'd like to go to a little more, a couple of reject uh, objections, uh, specifically about of uh, modalists, uh, there are certain types of passages that are used in order to fill it out, Like Acts two thirty eight, Isaiah 9 6 and John 4 24. Yeah. I see you already like doing like this. So, you, you know, Um it's- what 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 would what would be like the whole in one type of ways to refute uh, modalism
1: um, well first of all in acts 238 it, it's there there are several views interesting i remember i i pointed out in my a couple articles um, i forgot my the the last reference point but i pointed out there's several different views among christians of acts 238 and that baptism is the cause of redemption, is not one of them. The four views, and this is mainly by the work of Dan Wallace and others, that baptism here refers to only physical baptism. That's, a, that's one view. Another view is that baptism is, it's only spiritual. Another view is um, that it should be repunctuated, you know, from second person to third person, then back to second person showing that the repentance is tied into the forgiveness or redemption, or I mean, the, the uh, yeah, forgiveness of sins. And finally, it's certainly, as Wallace points out, it's certainly probable to a first century Jewish audience, as well as Peter, that the idea of baptism may combine both the spiritual reality and the physical symbol. And, you know, Peter connects both of these things, like he does in Acts 1047 and um also in chapter 11 15 and 16
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so if, the, if that view is correct then it's saying that the um it's saying not much about the theological significance between the symbol only that historically they were viewed together that may be a view the fact that there's different views and the fact that no one at least grammatically sees um uh, of standard grammars that that the work of baptism is the very cause of forgiveness of sins. Um, I think it's it would be more comport with Luke's own theology and Peter's own theology, particularly in passages. Same author, right? Uh, Peter said in John, or in Acts 10.43, he says, all the prophets bear witness. And he says all the adjectives used. I love the passage. All the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, testify that, believing in him whoever believes in Christ receives forgiveness of sins through his name but Peter says all the Old Testament prophets believe that so what Peter's saying is the Old Testament was a Christian book in that in that sense you know that that's what the Old Testament believers that's what they believe that through Christ through believing in him they receive forgiveness excuse me, forgiveness of sins. So he's not going to contradict what he said earlier on, but normally one Pentecostals will use acts two thirty eight to show that it's in the name of Jesus and, in in the name of the unipersonal deity, who's now two persons in one body in Jesus, Jesus only, because they think that, you know, their system of thought, they see Jesus as the name of the one person deity and he comes out as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And most Oneness Pentecostals are are simultaneous modalists, meaning they see all three modes as existing simultaneously. So if you say, hey, wait, the baptism of Christ, you you hear the voice of the Father, do you not? They see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a dove, and then Jesus is baptized. That's Mm. Trinitarian.
0: Luke, Luke 3, 22, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's Trinitarian, is it not? Um, they would explain like this, as we were talking about Genesis nineteen twenty four. Well, God is omnipresent, so Jesus can p- project different voices and manifestations at the same time. Really? That, <laughs> that's how the apostles would really look at that? That's how John the Baptist, oh, it's that one person doing this. That's awesome. No, that, yeah. that's... We so just so, take so like, plane. for instance,
0: in Matthew 17, uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, for instance, where the father says, listen to my son. Yeah. For instance, that's like he himself that says listen to me. Yeah. So it's
1: yeah. Yeah. The I think I, I think the weakest point of one is theology. I think the weakest point of oneness theology is simply this. How to explain the son praying to the father. Yeah. I think the prayers from the son to the father and the love. Or from the father to the son is there? We could, or, or
0: wh- when he was on the cross and when he said, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" For instance, like how are you going to explain that one way? Like, are you imp- uh, imposing uh, yeah. like like God in of himself is like schizophrenic or something? So every time when I point to those verses, for instance, it's just mm, I don't want to. Like, bro, it's still scripture, so deal with it. Yeah,
1: yeah, they they would say it's his human nature crying out to his own divine yeah angel. but that's
0: Nestorianism which is a heresy so it really is uh, yeah. they'll
1: deny that but yeah it really is Nestorianism you have two persons in one body yeah. i got for
0: instance if it comes to the baptism uh we got of course Matthew uh 2819 which uh Jesus says kai to huyo hagios so like one name fathers and holy spirit and the Didaki of course is um 100% within the first century written by the apostles himself and when you go to uh, chapter seven it says like this is the formula baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit so there you have it already like Peter itself says uh, do it this way and not in uh, Acts two thirty eight. and we for instance have like in first Samuel seventeen forty five, if I recall correctly someone also says there do it in the name of God do it because he wants you to do it, but it's not necessarily a, a formula of baptism.
1: Yeah, um, and here here's the the issue um, with Matthew. It's interesting the type of explanation or assertion that one as Pentecostals and Unitarians give. Number one, uh, what their chief arg- one of their arguments is that that's not scripture because that's not in the earliest manuscripts. And of course, anyone who says that doesn't know manuscripts. You know, they, they're just unread in that study. The fact of the matter is, and listen, if there's anyone as Pentecostals, listen, every single manuscript that contains Matthew 28, 19, every single one contains the Trinitarian formula with no variant, the Trinitarian form with no variant, every single manuscript. Now, uh, true, there's not, that verse is not contained in the earliest papyri. Well, neither is Second Timothy. So we got to get that out too, right? There's many verses that we don't have uh, papyri support. That doesn't mean anything. Papyri were early, early manuscripts. Doesn't Just because a verse is missing doesn't mean it wasn't there. And with Matthew 28, 19, also we look at the early versions. Um, we look at Latin. We look at all the, the Latin and the other early versions that contain Matthew 28, 19. They read the same. And as you mentioned, the Didache, which is, it's funny, Dave Bernard tries to reject the earliest date of the did a okay, cave but he does this and just it's a useless art it's a dead argument uh most scholars and he's not a scholar of patristics uh most scholars would date at around 70 to 120 AD um but you look at early the early church and you ask the question how did the early church see the baptismal formula in uh Matthew or in 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 the early church how would they see the how did they see the baptismal formula? And if you look at Scour, the early church, you find um, the Didache, you find the Latin version of that, you find the Bashuta, which is a very early um, Syriac translation, where it says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, again, the number of Greek <coughs> manuscripts um, that contain any variant are zero. There's no Greek manuscript that reads differently of all the ones that contain it, right? And in terms of church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Cybrim, and we can go on and on. They all affirm that baptism was in a Trinitarian formula, right? Now, the question is, well, if that's true, um, why don't we find the Trinitarian formula in Acts? Because we have, you know, Jesus's commandment which is undeniable. Some would point out to Eusebius show, uh, quoting a very short abbreviated um, rendition of Matthew twenty nineteen in the name of Jesus. All that shows is following many church fathers, many times it would abbreviate a passage. Paul did that. He loosely quoted different passages or abbreviated them. But the fact of the matter is, Eusebius also quotes the full Trinitarian formula in many of his letters. So you have both, but that doesn't prove anything, right? But the question is why then don't we find the Trinitarian formula in Acts? Um, first of all, whether it's in Acts or not doesn't prove modalism, it just doesn't prove it because the entirety of the New Testament and Old distinguishes the three persons. So it doesn't help. Whether Whatever the reason is, and there's two main reasons, it doesn't teach modalism. Even if it's Jesus' name only, what do we find in Acts? at never the same time. So when the one to say we we go by the Apostolic Doctrine, well, which formula? Because sometimes it's in, I think there's four different ones. (laughs) They're never the same in the name of Jesus, upon the name of Jesus, or into the Lord Jesus. I think there's four different ways of of saying it in Acts. But the two views are simply this. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus tells them to go out to all the nation, right? make disciples of all the nations. So this is one view. These nations that were outside first century Palestine, they were worshiping rocks. They were worshiping reptiles. They had no clue of who God was, let alone Jesus. So the full expression of baptism had to include the full nature of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? So in Acts, if you look at every baptism, they were were God-fearing Greeks. Or they were Jews who had a conception of one God. They had a conception of the Father, even though it was incoherent. They didn't need the full presentation. They need the expression. They need the presentation of Christ. So the idea that they were baptized in the name of Christ. Um, So that's one view. The nations, they needed the full presentation of God. Contrast to Acts, where uh, they already had a conception of who God was, in terms of, you know, even though it was incoherent. The other view, which I I find more viable, is simply this. I believe they would have used the Trinitarian formula um, because two issues. The word name, as you quoted 1 Samuel 17 45, where David says to Goliath, You know, you come with spear, sword, javelin, I come in the name of Yahweh. He wasn't claiming that his name was also Yahweh, but rather he comes in the power and authority of Yahweh. We see that in Acts 2 when they asked the apostles, the, the, the officials, by what name or power are you coming? You know, wh- who do you represent? By what name do you or power do you represent? Because in a Semitic mind, Semitic mind, uh, name didn't frequently does not mean somebody's name. Like, hey, my name is Peter, what's your name? But rather authority and power, like it was used in Acts, like it was used in First Samuel uh, 17. So when it says baptize in the name of Jesus, the authority and power of Christ. And I would say that that was not a verbal formula. That was not a verbal formula, but rather it denoted the kind of baptism. So when we're baptized and, and the word baptism from a lexical, syntactical standpoint, um, not merely dip, but rather unification or identity. I think, I think it was James Dow who wrote four volumes on the word baptismo, And he pointed out that the the chief meaning there was was unity and it denoted the sword going from the, from the blood to the water of a Roman sword and um, or the converse, but it showed going from one commitment to another. When you were baptized, it denoted unification, Mm -hmm. unification in the power and authority of Christ. Um, Kenneth West points out that it was a baptism essentially is a, a unification ceremony, right? That would be the chief, meaning of that so i believe it's just denoting the kind of baptism not necessarily there's no evidence uh, linguistically that it, it was actually a verbal formula and um but e- neither one of those would promote oneness doctrine even if it was in the name of jesus that doesn't mean jesus is the father that's like you know theological stretch there it doesn't prove that
0: yeah so but but then would more would say like isaiah 9 6 for those who don't know Isaiah 9.6, if you, if you want to go to read, it says that uh, for unto us a son is given, uh, the government will rest upon his shoulders, so His name will be Elgibor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. Like not exactly those orders, but you get the point. But the point of contention right now is everlasting father, but it is the son. So the son is the father. That's like the superficial way of looking at the verse. So Dr. Delcor, how would you handle this?
1: Well, um, you know, first and foremost, from Genesis Revelation, it, it, it nowhere teaches uh, Unitarianism. But secondly, dealing with the verse, because we we want to deal with the verse. First, I see it as a, a fallacy of equivocation, because they're asserting that the term father, which is ab, and I'll, I'll explain how it actually reads here, um, only has one meaning. The New Testament character, God the Father, it only has one meaning. So that's in their mind. So they're equivocating on the word father. Same with John 14. 20, uh, as we're going to look at John four twenty four, and Ephesians, when it says we have in 1 Corinthians 8:6, one father, one God, we have uh, one God, the father, um, contrary to the fact the term father has various meanings in the Old Testament, you know, uh, denoting the context, and it's not asserting Unitarianism as they would like to see. Like Malachi two ten it doesn't not, it's interesting because the KJV would agree Uh, it's not a oneness rendering because it's not identifying the person of the father when it says um, we have one, uh, there's one God, the father, creator of all things. Um, The father is in lower case in the NASB the KJV and other, even in the Jewish Publication Society, they don't see the father as an identification of a person, but rather with the father denoted as we'll see in a second. First in this verse, you have the word Shem. Uh, which is translated name, his name will be called, not a formal title for God, but rather um, it denoted essence or essential characteristics. Clearly that was as young and other theologians, Old Testament theologians would point out, this denoted one's authority, similar to the name uh, Anama in the Greek, it denoted characteristics or authority. So clearly this was the Semitic concept of the name here um so as to the essence and character of the messiah he's wonderful he's counselor he's mighty god he's father eternal he's prince of peace but interesting and i always point this out the word father for yahweh is only applied i think about uh a little more than a dozen times i think about 15 times in the old testament that's it 15 times in the old testament and it typically denoted his parental or providential character to his children, Israel. For instance, in um, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, you will say to to Pharaoh, um, says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Uh, Let my son go that he may serve me. So you see the parental uh, characteristics there of God to his children. Um, In Psalm 103, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children um, so that Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. So he's acting like a father. Um, And one more um, Isaiah 63, 16, you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You Lord are our father, our redeemer, right? So you see that the the word father um, denoted parental, his parental character. Right or his providential character to Israel. And again, it wasn't a standard term or a reoccurring term to God or, or some reoccurring epithet. It's only used 15 times. But here's, here's a main issue linguistically. Um, the word, the, the prefix of that word ab father also carries a meaning of possessor or founder or source. Like in 2 Samuel uh, tw- twenty three thirty one 2331 speaks of a bile bun father uh, or he who possesses strength or the strong one or in Exodus 6 624 a which means father of gathering or he possesses gathering and same with Malachi 2:10 he possesses he's the source he's the creator so in this sense the Messiah is the source of creation but syntactically and here's where one is folks do not um, most do not recognize or do not care to look at syntactically, the the term there, it's not just Ab, um, it's abiad, which is a compound word, which literally means father and forever. So the syntax here is father eternal. That's the literal syntax of this word, father eternal, indicating the eternal nature of the father. Now, to show this, interestingly, the Targum, which was, uh, it showed the the views of the early, it was a paraphrase aramaic paraphrase showed the early views of the, of the of the jews did it not in isaiah 9 6 we read this here's a translation of the targum comporting to what i just said it's the messiah's character as creator father eternal one who possesses eternity mm-hmm. for us a child is born to us a son is given his name will be called wonderful wonderful counselor mighty god listen to this and here's how they translate the term existing forever or he who lives forever, the Messiah whose days and peace shall increase right uh, upon us. So they translate it according to how the Hebrew semantic is and how how the Hebrew Abayab actually translate. Even the Targum recognizes that he possesses eternity. So I think um, in line with that and scholarship, there's, there's no scholars that agree with the oneness interpretation here especially the lexical semantic of the term and, um, the context of father. So, you know, yeah, we look at the new Testament, we see that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For instance, uh, in John eight 44, when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, it's not necessarily that the devil is a father, but it's just, um, I would actually say the overarching person of, of, of like, uh, Those who are demon-possessed, for instance. Not necessarily the parental figure, but someone who is the overarching person of it. So would it it be a a good way to explain away Isaiah 9, 6? John 8, 44? Like, you are of your father, the devil. Um, It's not necessarily your father, but...
1: I think it would be better to show how the father's used, like in Isaiah 63, his parental role, and how the prefix ab is used, one who possesses something. And then tie that with the literal rendering, Father Eternal. It doesn't say eternal father in Hebrew, it says Father Eternal, or it's the Targums, yeah, yeah. He who lives forever, He who possesses eternity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and don't
1: do we not see that in the New Testament that Jesus is the agent of creation, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Colossians son, 2 9. Yeah, Colossians yeah. 2 9. Uh, many of those type of verses. Um now, now we go to the next type of heresy, which is actually. Globally speaking, the most dominant, if you ask me, which is Arianism. Uh, the many ways people look at Jesus, for instance, is as a creature. And the verses that I would like to address in this particular case are uh, Proverbs 8 and uh, John 17.3. Okay.
1: All right. Um, yeah. Proverbs Proverbs 8 is is interesting um, on Proverbs 8 because you have historically a few different definitions of this, but none of them would have a Jehovah's Witness view. When it says Jehovah produced me at the beginning of his ways, the the earliest of his achievements, well, first of all, the context from chapter one to chapter nine is wisdom. So if you're going to say, this is the messiah here jehovah produced this is, i believe this is from the new world translation jehovah produced me in the beginning of his ways if you're going to say that that he that this messiah here or if you're thinking that this the referential identity is messiah and he was produced at a certain time well the context here is wisdom so that would imply that wisdom was produced at a certain time and jehovah was without wisdom he didn't have any wisdom before that Also, we find female gender verbs throughout um, in 8-2, chapter 8, verse 2. She takes her stand. And also in um, verse 1 of chapter 9 and verses 2 and 3 have female gender. There's no female messiahs. So they would also, again, that would comport to wisdom, not the messiah. So if wisdom was created, then God was without wisdom, you know. And in, in 8.23, we read from everlasting, I was established, and it denotes the same phrase is used in Psalm 90, verse 2. So if this is a description of Christ, which I don't believe, it actually proves that he's eternal from verse 20, 23. It's like a Muslim or Jehovah Witness using John 14.28. The Father is greater than I to show that he's not deity, um, even though they don't know what the word maison means or greater. Um Well, the same chapter in a few verses before in verse 23 points out that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is omnipresent. He says, I and the father will come to him, the ones who believe and hear his word, and we will make our abode with him. So he's asserting in the strongest way that he's omnipresent. So you can't just say, I believe in verse 28, but not verse 23 that demonstrates the Messiah has divine attributes. But the word produced. Um. Jehovah produced me at the beginning, again, this is from the New World Translation, Um, is kwana in in the Hebrew. And in the Old Testament, this word never means to create, just doesn't mean it. It carries the meaning really of, of to get or to buy, but not create. So they have a linguistic problem here. And again, the whole context is wisdom. So it's not a good one to show that jesus was created because that would first contradict the pre-existent passages both in the old and also it would contradict the angel of the lord references where he claims to be yahweh he identifies he's yahweh but in the new testament just the the vast amount of passages that demonstrate his eternality you know yeah
0: uh, great great assertion like um uh, one thing that people say like, yeah, Jesus was the first creation, which is like Colossians 1.15, with, uh, the, the first one, or the, the prototokos, which many Arianists also used to try to refer. But one thing that, for instance, Sam Shimon said, that we were doing a session and, and one of his live sessions, he also, for instance, says that, uh, do angels need space and place? Yes, of course, like the heavens and the earth, i.e. space and place, were created which the angels could dwell in. Like, for instance, when Aaron is particularly Jehovah's Witnesses, when they say that Jesus was an angel, but he was before creation, where was he dwelling in or where was he when he was an actual angel? And they would say, like, yeah, in the Father, but God is not a dwelling place. So God is not bound by, uh, by place in order for an angel to dwell in, i.e., uh, right. Christ came forth from God, John 1, uh, Proverbs 2 verse 6 it says that uh, wisdom came forth from the mouth of God uh, just like in Genesis 2 24 where from the side of uh, Adam came Eve for instance and uh, like for instance in John nineteen thirty four, when the guy uh, spirit in the side of Christ so water and blood came out of it from also which the church came out so like there's many much uh, symbolism which is used there and for instance in Isaiah 66 verse 13 it says that God was uh, addressed as a woman who gave birth, and we don't negate that fact. Like for instance, here in Proverbs eight, we see hakma as uh, a feminine word for wisdom. So, like, yeah. So there are many type of ways to refute this one. Uh, and the next word verse I would like to address is John seventeen three. The the Father is the only true God.
1: Yeah, the Father. Um... John 17, yeah, it, it's interesting because as we'll look at, um, they will assert John 17, 3, however, they will ignore John 17, 5, as if John just is contradicting himself. First of all, and here, here's the main and plain point. Um, the Unitarian assertion there, it is simply this, that the Father alone is the true God. But the same author recorded Jesus as saying he's eternal in John seventeen five so it doesn't help you know that would be something they would have to grapple with but here's here's one of the main issues the text doesn't say the father alone is the only god in fact the adjective manas alone is not predicated to the father but it's predicated to the true god right so it's not saying the father exhausts the category of 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 the true god it just doesn't read like that because again alone is predicated of the of god not of the father so it's not saying you, Father, alone are the true God. It doesn't say that because it's predicated to God. Similar to 1 John 5.20, where Jesus is called the true God. The
0: true God, yeah.
1: Yeah, esteen, um, um, the true God. He is, a aleithinos us, the true God and, and life. Just as in this passage in 1 John 5.20 doesn't mean that Jesus exhausts the category of the true God because it doesn't say that here neither is john seventeen three. does it does that say that the father alone exhausts the category of the true god any of the persons can say i'm the true god right they're just reading in other words they're reading unitarian into it again syntactically um the adjective does not is not predicated on the father alone but it's predicated on the one true god
0: yeah yeah and also one thing i would like to add on is for instance in jude 4 it says that Christ is the only true Lord and Master. Does that negate the Father? Yeah, many people would say no, 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 no. Uh, Let me tell you,
1: yeah. And let me tell for everyone. I I think, and I use this all the time with Jehovah's Witnesses because this is one verse, and there's there's a few where the New World Translation has not changed it yet. Right? Their 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 Greek translation is a Westcott and Hort, which is okay. Um, you know, not perfect. But the fact of the matter is, it reads, um, it, it's a grand old sharp rule too, showing that there's only one article, the only master and, it doesn't say and the Lord, just the only master and Lord, Jude 1.4. So how is it that Jesus is the only Lord, since master and Lord is governed, only master and Lord is governed by the one article, uh, Tom manon the only owner or master and Lord jesus christ how is that possible if you're a unitarian is jesus the only lord and the what happened to jehovah you know did jude forget who jehovah was but yeah i think it's a right now it's extraordinarily useful passage with jehovah's witnesses that show that jesus is the only master and lord yeah
0: yeah awesome uh, i would like to finish it off with a particular uh, subject uh, how should we understand the word
1: person um, and, and there's much discussion of person For, first first we don't want to understand it when it's a referring when we're referring to the Father or the or, or the Holy Spirit we don't want to say that person means people a lot of Unitarians would reject person on that basis but the fact of the matter is what is Pentecostals the UPCI the United Pentecostal Church has no problem saying that God exists as one person. They have no problem saying that what we mean by person simply is something with that possesses personal attributes, something with um, or at least denoted with personal attributes, uh, something that has personal characteristics. And I think that would be a good definition of personhood or self-aware subject. You know, we don't mean people. In other words, if you're if you're a people, you're necessarily a person. But if you're a person, you're not necessarily a people like angels like the devil. Mm. Joe Witnesses have no problem seeing the seeing Satan as a person. Why? They say because Satan communicates. Why would they apply that same evidence to prove personhood, apply it to the Father and Holy Spirit as persons, you know, or as the Holy Spirit uh, because the Holy Spirit speaks. He gives commands, uh, Acts 10, Acts 13, so on and so forth. But person is just self-aware subject. I think Hippolytus was the first person first person to use the word person in fact but just to to, to, uh, denote something or someone who who has personal attributes not people not necessarily people yeah great
0: point yeah one of the one of the students of athanasia i forgot his name he called uh, the three nescio also the, the three i don't know what's just it just uh shows a little bit of the the integrity that the church fathers had in order to, when they're trying to disambiguate and explicate the doctrine the misunderstanding is, is that there was an evolution of the doctrine like like a seed that goes branches and all this type of stuff but no it's just making something very difficult a bit more easier to grasp but we always have to respect the the, the border of uh apophaticism like apophaticism actually yeah. shortly means like there is a, t- a certain type of knowledge that we enter into the divine, which we as creatures, we don't have. Uh, but th- a lot of people, unfortunately, they, th- they believe in Unobianism, which is an heresy, which is God is simple, God is understandable. For me as a person, it should be very logical. But this- that's not the case in this fact. Yeah. Is there something you would like to add uh, on?
1: I, you know, one, one, yeah, one of the greatest... One of the most authoritative, uh, well, I don't want to say most, but authoritative patristic authority, J.D. Kelly, um, J.D. N. Kelly, Jan D. Kelly says this, this was a patristic scholar in his book, Early Christian Doctrine. He says, the reader should notice how deeply the conception of the plurality of divine persons was imprinted in the apostolic tradition and the popular faith. And I think um, that does sum up the early church's view. They didn't have articulate language, so you're going to see, you know, you're just not going to see modern language. But they did conceptualize a triune God, three distinct persons, and persons. The term "person" goes way back, and um, that's they were satisfied with using the word "person." I mean, you know, they. I guess they could have used egos or self-aware subject fact of the matter is there's three persons who are distinct who share the nature of the one god and that's what we find in the vast evidence of the content of biblical revelation yeah
0: amazing uh, there's one question just arose in me so like off the top of my mind i would like to ask you what is what are your thoughts about the filioque is, is there something do you have a certain type of uh, opinion
1: on it um i you know i i would probably hold to places like john 15 26 um, um where the Holy spirit was sent by both the father and I, and I'm thrilled with the arguments on both sides. You know, it's not, they're not, I don't see it as essential arguments, but I would see that the father and son, and it's an economic issue. You know, they send the Holy spirit showing that there is some submission of the Holy spirit, that he obeyed the sending just as the son obeyed the sending of himself from the father. Um, But I know there's a vast amount of argumentation on it and disputation on um, the sending of, uh, of the spirit, but I would, I would, you know, I'm, I guess I'm more convinced of, uh, in John 15, that the spirit was sent by both God, the father and God, the son.
0: Mm, Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Then I would say like, uh, it has been approximately around like one and a half hour. Awesome time. Very fruitful. I hope everyone who was watching uh, up until this point has, uh, has got a little bit of, of uh, fruits and then spiritual fruits, spiritual meat. So Dr. Delcor, my sincere gratitude. Uh, i love to have love, love, love to have done this session with you. And uh, you just mentioned also by email and just now that uh, God willing, uh, at the end of this year, you will be visiting Holland. I'd love uh, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you will give uh, a couple of seminars. Would you like to ex- uh, elaborate on that?
1: Um, yeah, we we would like to visit Holland. I um, like to perhaps do an apologetic conference as long as there's a, a gym close by. Hey, I'm I, I could be there. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, I w- one of my uh, one of my apologetical contemporaries. I last week I told them uh, that I was doing a podcast with you. Like Edward Delcourt, the bodybuilder. What bodybuilder? And i was like, wait, Edward a bodybuilder. He was. I, a bodybuilder. He told, yeah. Is it true that I saw, t- I saw some couple of pictures, but uh, it was tough to recognize. But is it true that uh, at an earlier stage in your life that you were doing bodybuilding?
1: Yeah, I competed um, back in my past life. Also wasn't in, in the 90s, um, being that you mentioned it. I don't normally mention this, but um, I was on an athletic ministry called the Power Team. We'd go around the world. We do feats of strength and you awesome. have huge crusades. Yeah, and so it's kind of fun they'd bring all these people in that would not normally go to church and because they want to see some guy put his head through eight feet of ice or something and then we'd have an opportunity to do all these feats and one guy would give a testimony then at the end we'd give a gospel presentation and um we we uh we're very popular in the in the 90s because that you know yeah still going on you know yeah
0: you just mentioned as long as there's a gym there then i will come like yeah you just uh you just expose (laughs) yourself so
1: I just expose myself. Now, awesome! That myself.
0: <laughs> no, awesome. <laughs> I like the type of stuff—a uh, renaissance man. Uh. So, Doctor Dalkor, thank you yet again. God bless you for everything. God bless your ministry. Let this podcast just send out many, many, many good uh, informations for everyone who's watching. So,
1: thank you. Thank, thank you. De- delighted to be here, and uh, keep in touch. We will certainly will. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. God bless.
0: Yeah, it has ended. So. Yeah, that was awesome. That was really, 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 really awesome.
1: Yeah. So. okay, oh, good. Kind uh, glad. Um, hopefully, it helps a lot of a lot of people. Sure will. Sure will. You know. Yeah. So you you had uh, how long did you have Sam on? I mean, how long Sam, ago?
0: Uh, this was uh, less than a week ago. Uh, he was oh, doing really? his live session. He was with Usama uh, Doc and he was just asking for a QA, and A, uh, and there were certain type of uh, things I would like to know about Ezekiel fourteen verse nine and these type of things. And in the same night, the same night, he put it out there a video of uh, Greg Stafford, uh, the, the Arianist, and yeah. um, there was this ten minute video where he was refuting Samshoon, refuting, uh, uh-huh. and nobody wanted to watch that video because of like his mm-hmm. blasphemous way of speaking and he was very very yeah <laughs> neglectful very demonic possessed and i really didn't like it but sam just like put the link out there and i put in description box like sam i'll go watch you guys go do i a i'm going to write down the meat of the matter and so i did so they were doing a q a and while i was watching it i was just it was at uh, some couple of objections but first Corinthians 124 Proverbs 8, of course, and uh, uh, Micah 5, uh, the word there. Okay, Exodus oh, yeah. also used in Proverbs yeah. 8. So I send it to, via Skype. I send it to Sam Shimon. He's like, Vartan, can you call me now? And so like approximately about 45 minutes, we we're just refuting uh, uh, Greg Stafford's heresies. And uh, at the very end, we encouraged uh, all the women in the chat to, to be uh, my wife one day. And if he had a sister, he would marry me to her because I was <laughs> the eighth archangel. All this type of stuff so yeah there's like less than a week ago
1: actually actually it's interesting i think the first time i met sam was years ago at a greg stafford debate with james white i forgot this is 1991 or, or 99 or something like that yeah but uh yeah that was years yeah i've known sam for uh for uh gosh we've been a lot of apologetic cruises with james white together but um yeah we have a long history
0: yeah, yeah, I I I remember when Greg Stafford put it a video online about the exact same um, debate that you just mentioned, I think. Uh, Sam is yeah, it's hard to do it's hard not I mean, to debate. I,
1: <laughs> I mean, Greg Stafford is uh he, he, I thought he was a good debater at that debate. You know, he's kind of Weird now, he, he's not the same. But um at that debate he he really was a good debater. He was very he was gracious, but he was very articulate and he presented his case very well. And um yeah, I thought he was a good debater on uh, just on the line of debater. Robert Bowman debated him. Oh but oh wasn't I, good. I uh, I love his book here.
0: hans uh, Oh yeah, yeah.
1: I think Bowman's yeah. a great writer. Let me tell you, he's a great writer. We we co-authored a book together, but um, he's not a great debater. That's why he doesn't debate a lot. He's just not. But um, he's a great writer. I like Bowman. You know, he's a
0: good yeah, writer. and I I love his book so much. It's so easy to read. When someone says, "Give me a book about the deity of Christ," put him Jesus in his place, hands down. And uh, I have his email uh, email faiththinkers.org. Uh, I sent him a couple of uh, requests for the podcast, of course, but unfortunately uh-huh. didn't re- respond. But that's uh, that's not that's not not a big deal, of course. But but Robert Bowman Jr. is, in my estimation, one of the most underrated. If it, but many of these bright minds, uh, when push push comes to suffer, when it comes to debating, uh, they are very nice. And of course, as you know, Sam Shimun, he's just hard as nails, and I really think that, um, yeah. A, a, a way i would prefer
1: every too hard <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah just uh, yeah sam's a beast out there but uh yeah i mean not everyone debates you know robert bowman certainly is not that's not his skill you know he he debated stafford and i thought he did not win um, not because his information wasn't good just because stafford's a very articulate debater bowman's not but let me tell you bowman has contributed so much great stuff to christianity He's awesome I, he's one of my uh yeah i really like bowman's work and i like i like his writing style too
0: yeah, yeah. i have saw your debate with uh steven
1: richie did i did i oh, call
0: out his yeah. name correct
1: yeah richie right or, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: yeah 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 you know he died shortly after that yeah oh, yeah it's true like a six months later yeah i think he passed away unfortunately yeah. you know yeah it's funny because I, you know, I'm light. I'm I'm light when it comes to debate. You know, I don't get, you know, super upset. And and um, when I first saw Stephen Ritchie, he was wearing this bright blue suit. And I, hey Stephen, how you doing? I met him in the parking lot, but then afterwards, I I came to him. I said, so, I was looking at his outfit. It was bright blue. I said, are, I said, are you gonna debate or sing? You know, but he just kind of looked at me because he, he did, he's not light. He didn't have a sense of humor, you know. But um, he was a gracious guy. I mean, you know, he wasn't a jerk when he debated. No, no,
0: he, he was very passionate. Of course, uh, with his debate with Sam Schmoo, for instance, he was very much out there and there's all this type of stuff. Like, like uh, uh, you can always appreciate a bit of zealousness, of course. So, And, of course, the thing with you, is, as far as I can sense, your whole, your whole spiel is like the meat of the matter. Like, what does the passage say? What does it mean? What does it mean? So, like, when, when people throw, like, ad hominems or just... It just, yeah. it's not worth it to uh, to watch it anymore. So, um, awesome debates. Are there yeah. some? Are yeah. there some uh, certain things coming up in the future from uh, from your side?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, Lord willing, I have a pastor's retreat. Actually, I'm speaking at. A, even though I'm not a pastor, I'm speaking at a pastor's retreat in About three weeks, but then we have a, the 9 11 conference with Ministry to Muslims, uh, George Sahik, where every year around 9 11 we have an apologetic conference geared toward Islam. I handle the, the Christian topics, but we'll have Anthony Rogers doing uh, the concept of God in Islam, I'll do the concept of God in Christianity. Then I think Jay Smith, fabulous speaker, um, he'll do Islamic topics. Uh, David Wood normally he's not, he won't be here this time, but he normally comes with us. Matt Slick will be on online and Tony Costa. So it'll be a... Wow. You know, Sam always shows up sometimes. But, uh, yeah, this is
0: like the uh, Christian form of Avengers <laughs> teaming up. Against. Yeah, okay. That's awesome. Look, awesome.
1: I, I we were in Virginia. I did a conference with James White and Anthony Rogers. We did a Trinitarian conference at a Presbyterian church, and it was packed out. And Sam and came, Vocab came. Anyways, we all went out to dinner. So at the dinner was me, Vocab, Sam, Anthony, and James White. He didn't really want to be associated with Sam Shimondo. And we took this picture of everyone at dinner. And, you know, and, and Anthony was pointing out, you know, this would be a great place for the Muslims to bomb us. The greatest and brightest minds of Islam, is are the greatest apologists are here at this table. And, you know, all together, you know, <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, it's funny that picture shows James White like this. Yeah, no, I, like, I remember. He didn't want to be in the picture because he didn't want to be associated with Sam. It was really yeah. funny.
0: Yeah. No, I remember, if I'm if i mis- if I'm not mistaken, uh, once I watched uh, Sam Schmuth's photos on Facebook, and of course, uh-huh. there are all these type of conferences. And I remember one picture, of course, when you, he was with James White. And if I recall correctly, also with you, uh-huh. could, I could be wrong. That's- but I yeah, the whole thing between James White and him, yeah
1: oh that yeah that, that yeah, uh, he used to love james james white i mean we used to go to the you know now i i have long history with james white and i have nothing to get you know i don't agree with every single thing but james white is a, a friend of mine like sam you know i don't agree with him on everything but um he's a friend i still yeah, you know, we have a long history together you know and i don't
0: yeah you know. like for instance his last debate with uh jake the muslim metamorphosis metamorphosis whatever he is like that was a solid yeah, yeah. one because I always say like yeah. don't throw out the baby with the battle. Like for instance, my first book, right, right about the Trinity was this one, like uh, the Forgotten Trinity, for instance. Like, uh, I really oh. like, misused this book. Great book, but yeah. This, one, yeah. this is an awesome one, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, great book.
0: Yeah. So yeah, um, that's
1: a really that's that's like a standard, you know, book there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah. That, my aspirations actually are. Like My focus, I want to do a course in Greek, for instance, in Koine Greek. Uh, yeah, we are already teaming up here in Holland with uh, uh, Christians. Uh, one Christian has uh, is a theological scholar in Islam, for instance. He is so, so, so amazing. Okay. He is so underrated. Um, yeah, with, of course, uh-huh. the podcast and, of course, the edification and hopefully what... What what is happening in America between like you, Sam Shimoon, Anthony Rogers, David Wood, for instance, Volcad Malone. The the same type of community is also rising up here in in Holland and in Belgium, for instance, with the same Uh, language that we are using. And uh, it's working out. We are getting many responses from Christians for thank you guys for doing this, but also from uh, Muslims that are just nominal Muslims. Like, guys, uh, thank you guys for doing this. Right and uh, yeah, uh, the the the
1: works of the Lord are uh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's great. That's great.
0: It it would be awesome if uh, apologetics would be my bread and butter, uh, Lord willing. Yeah, then uh, yeah. Then I would say, Edward, uh, if I may call you so, Doctor Delcourt. Thank you very, very, very much. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah uh, and um
0: i can i can even better explain the trinity than i can explain how uh,
1: grateful i am so
0: (laughs) that's that's
1: (laughs) (laughs) very important doc yeah very passionate doctrine you know i get passionate too when i explain it
0: yeah me too you know Uh, you're a hero of mine and i wish you very well i wish you all the health all the best all the love that god has to offer you and your family then uh
1: Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you and sure. I hope to talk to you again. Sure. Well, sure. Will. Right. I'll,
0: we'll keep in contact.
1: Thank you. All right. God bless. Bye. All right.